Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. So those were the sounds of the Natterjack toad we were listening to back in April up in Cumbria. And what exactly was that noise all about? That is the male Natterjack toad that comes out first and he would be making his way towards scrapes or ponds or shallow water bodies. He really wants to kind of attract a female, so this call comes from an external vocal sac which inflates out and rasps. He makes this fantastic call, which you've just heard, and it can travel quite some distances. You can hear it for up to a mile away. He's he's solely wanting the females to hear that, to encourage them to come down to the scrape, where hopefully they, they will breed. It's amazing. I mean, some, some of the vocal sacs on, on the younger males can almost be as big as the male's head. It's, it's unbelievable when you see them. And we were with um, Darren from the National Trust up on the Cumbrian coast near Barrow and Furness. Sandscale Hawes National Nature Reserve. Yeah. And National Trust Rowan Head. And he took us out over a fence. It was an enclosed area. That, and we had to go there with him because he had a licence. Yeah. Um, and it was quite windy, but then the wind dropped, the sun went down. It was a beautiful sunset, mm. and we waited and waited. We were sort of in a shallow pond, really. Like yeah, we were we cuddling were, in a yeah. shallow pond. And then that started. Mm. Like, all at once there was this croak, and then it was like a whole load of them started, and they just carried on. Yeah, you can, you can get multiple males around one pond, and... It's almost like they're competing against each other to call, um, and it, it can get really, really loud, especially if you, if you have, say, 10 to 20 males around a pond calling. They usually start just when it goes dark because they, they want to be the first male to be calling to attract that female. It's completely in tune in themselves where they need to breed with, with the females, and that's their full focus, and to compete against the other males. And when the females start to come to the pond, they'll get even more excited and start moving around. And, and sometimes you'll see three or four of the males kind of trying to clamp onto the female. And so it, it's really good that the females come all at once so they, they can almost um, kind of pair up rather than one female being bombarded.
So for the latest episode of Nature Tripping, we are in the middle of a car park on the North Wales coast. It's the middle of July and it's pretty grey and it's raining, but it's only raining a bit, slightly damp. As you can see, Talakra is a really popular place for dog walkers um, and that is something we do have to manage alongside the conservation, the the management and monitoring of of the species. Um, It's the public management as well. We're here to talk about natterjack toads with Mandy Cartwright. Mandy, would you like to introduce yourself and say a little bit about the organisation that you work for? Yeah, so I'm Mandy. Um, I work for Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust. As you can see, you're in beautiful North Wales at the moment. Um, It always rains here. But yeah, I'm the North Wales officer for the charity and I've worked with ARC now for about nine years. Um, My main job is to manage nature reserves for great crested newts, but also to support and help alongside colleagues, the natural toads and sand lizards, um, where we are today, Gornans and Talacra dunes. We're sat here right on the kind of tip of the de-estuary, a place we call Point of Air. So looking down to the right now um, if you walk down there when we have a high tide there's a fantastic bird hide down there there's a high tide roost so as the water comes in all the birds get pushed up and you can see oyster catcher there's little egrets down there all kind of wadering birds Um, and as you move further into here we've got salt marsh in front of us um, and then that goes into the dunes which rolls all the way down to prostatin um, there's various landowners that own the dunes and they employ different people from land managers to rangers which we work in partnership with um, for the sand lizards and natterjack toads at this site. We're in the car park at the moment but what we're going to do is take a wander into the interior of this duny habitat and talk more about natterjack toads and who they are, what they like, uh, how they live and maybe we might even see one. Maybe, though, something to clarify, like, early on, which has confused me in the past, is how do you tell the difference between a toad and a frog? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that question, yeah, I get this question quite a lot. Um, so frogs have smooth skins, and I, I always kind of describe them as being quite athletic. I don't know if you've ever been in rough grass and next minute this this frog kind of leaps out. Yeah. Um, very, very strong back legs and they can actually leap about 20 times their own body length. They also have round pupils and they have like a dark patch at the back, which is their eardrum. So that that is classic frog. The toads, they're not as athletic. They can hop, but it's more of a hobble. They move a lot slower. Um, natterjack toads are known as the running toads so they're a little bit better than the common toads you know on short sward or just sandy patches like this they can move pretty quickly so we do call them the running toad but toads also have warty skin so it's quite it's quite granular and bubbly skin and their skin is a lot thicker as well than common frogs um, they also have different eyes so they have more of a slit which is like a copper colour and they also have these bulges at the back of their head which are called paratoid glands. Um, toad skins are toxic 
and it comes from these glands so if they're in fear if you disturb it or if there's a predator come to potentially eat it, it from these glands it would produce a toxin from their skin and it would be really disgusting for a, mm. for a predator to eat um, so those are the main differences and, and toads are a little bit bigger and heavier they're the largest and heaviest amphibian we've got in the UK as yeah, well yeah how many species of toad have we got in the UK we've got two species of toad we've got the common toad and the natterjack okay. toad um, but the natterjack toad is pretty special it, and it has got um, visible differences from the common toad so some of their warts can be tipped in red color um, they're a bit smaller than the common toad, so a male, its length from, from the tip of its kind of nose to the back is about six and a half centimetres. The female's a little bit bigger at seven centimetres. The common toads are about nine centimetres in length. Um, but they also have this fantastic yellow dorsal strip around the back, so it's like a stripe going down. And sometimes it, it, it can appear a bit skew-with, so that, that kind of dorsal strip is individual to that individual toad as okay. our fingerprint is to us. Um, so they do have little variations, but that's what you're looking for. And, and their eyes are different as well. They have the most amazing eyes. And I'm hoping we, we can find one for you later so we can, we can, we can look at it. Um, but their eyes are... Uh, it's almost like a crazed vein going through with colours of mm -hmm. yellow. It is, it is spectacular. Mm -hmm. um, really, really, really stands out. And, and also they're, they're the running toads, so they will run after prey, where common toads are pretty sedentary. They'll sit there and wait for something to fly back, uh, and it'll catch it with its tongue. But natterjacks will actively run and seek prey as well. Mm, excellent. Sounds yeah. quite exciting, yeah. little creatures. And the other thing is, like all reptiles and amphibians, they're cold-blooded, aren't they? Yes. Their bodies are literally the same temperature as the air temperature or the water temperature the whole time. Is that right? Yeah, so they need to use the environment to kind of manage their their body temperatures. Yeah. So at the moment it's there's quite a wind coming through and it's wet. So I wouldn't expect to see a common lizard basking on, on this fence here. It'd be far too cold, so it, it would just stay dormant. But as soon as it kind of feels the heat increasing it would come out it would lie on here its body would kind of spread over and i've seen them so thin it's like a sheet of paper what's well, so sort of maximize their surface area that's exposed to the sun yeah from no it's not the sun it's the oh. heat they okay. need so yeah. if it's in july and it's a really hot day um, it's not the sunlight, it's, it's the heat, so right. they would be looking for, if it's a really hot day, they would come out when the sun is behind the clouds. So it's, it's the heat they need to warm themselves up. Um, they need to get warm to be able to move, to breed, right. to run after prey, and then also to digest their food as well. Yeah. Um, it's the same for amphibians. They yeah. need, the water temperature needs to be a certain temperature for them to go in and to literally warm up a little bit so they can they can they can be more active when they're warmed up a bit yeah yeah got it. interesting right shall right yeah. it's starting to rain quite heavily now but we're gonna continue on uh we're gonna pack up and wander off into the dunes i think so we've moved away from the car park and we've been an area just back from the dunes, I think, which is full of interesting plants and a bit boggy and swampy. Could you tell us a bit more about this habitat? Yeah, well, at the moment you're stood in, inside one of the what we call the natterjack toad enclosures. Um, so you can see there's a fence all the way around it. 
and it is damp which is good that's what amphibians like damp habitats but there's also in front of us now what we call a natterjack scrape and there is some tadpoles on the edges so this is a pool moment. it's a pool really isn't it it is it's a pool yeah why is it called a scrape because generally natterjacks just like shallow scrapes so like a puddle they like a clean scrape of water um, with no predators so there's not a build-up of aquatic invertebrates that could predate the tadpoles so they're, they're called seasonal scrapes where they would dry up yeah. but then they would fill with water again so that's why the general term we use is scrape yeah. um, and that's what we've got in, fr- in front of us at the moment. Has it been dug out or is this a natural feature? No these have been created okay. um, so it was a damp area where we were here in Natterjack Toads Calling okay. um, so because they're rare and protected we wanted to create more breeding scrapes on site so about 10-12 years ago these were created due to hearing them calling it being wet we knew if we scraped them um, we would we would get natterjacks breeding here Mm -hmm. and we have the first year after they were created it was very very popular with natterjacks here Um, they do move through the dune systems we've got various scrapes through the dune systems so they can occupy quite a long range of the dune systems with all those breeding scrapes so they only come to the scrapes to breed the adults will come they will breed and they will spawn and then they will leave and then the tadpoles will develop it can take depending on temperatures you can see them at the edge of the ponds now they go to the edge of the ponds because that's where the water is the warmest and where they can develop the quickest but we would hope they would develop anything from about seven to ten weeks, depending on the temperatures. And the, the females lay the spawn after they've been mated? So what happens is, so the call we heard before of yeah. the males, that will attract the females and that they'll come to the pond. And the females are, are larger than the males, so what the males will do is they've got some black pads on their thumbs and two forefingers. Uh, they're called nuptial pads. And what they'll do is they'll climb onto the female and they'll use those to clasp her. And it, it looks like a really, really severe pinch. You know, you, you look and you think, ow, that must hurt. Um, and you can't, you can't separate them. It's such a strong clasp. And what will happen then is, it's called amplexus, the term we use, but what will happen is they'll move along the base of the scrape and the female will slowly release the spawn and as that happens the male will release some sperm to fertilize the eggs but what he'll do is he'll tuck his back legs under and you'll see him do like a little paddle like that and that's to kind of spray it onto for to fertilize and they'll keep doing that until she's re- basically released all of the the spawn string yeah. and he's gone along and fertilized it and it's a string of one or two metres long, I heard. Yeah, normally no more than a metre, usually. Um, and how many eggs would there be in a string? Oh, roughly about two and a half thousand. Blimey. Yeah. Wow. So, um, quite a lot, but they lay on mass um, because not all will develop, not all would make a tadpole. They've got constant challenges, so when they're tadpoles, they're in fear of aquatic predators like dragonfly larvae or water scorpions, um, and they can get picked off um, that way as well. But roughly, out of one spawn string, about three or four will make it to a fully grown adult. Very slim chances. 
And how long do they live once they've made it to adulthood? It's really difficult to tell in the wild because they've got, yeah. they've got constant challenges all the time of, um, you know, our climate's changing at the moment. And when they come back to the ponds, when you've got all the males around here in an April, May time calling, they're sitting ducks as well. Even though they want to breed the females, they're sitting ducks for predators to come along. Um, even though they've got those toxic skins, so we've got all the toxins in the parotid glands, we do sometimes find them with just their skin on the ground next to the pond. So predators have learned to rip their stomachs open um, and take all the insides out and eat on it and, and the skin has remained. Sometimes you'll see crows sat on the, the posts here and they'll be back in two. So they, they face so many different challenges, but I would like to think they live to about up to 12 years of age in the wild. I do know somebody that um, has got one in captivity. and It must be two years since I spoke to him, but it was a male, not a jack, and it is 22. But it came from um, Morrison's. It was imported in, I think it was a lettuce or something. It was imported in. Um, Are they a coastal toad or do we find them in other um, habitats as well? In the UK, they are primarily coastal. So in North Wales, you're stood in the only location in Wales where natterjacks are. It's the rarest amphibian in Wales. Um, so it's crucial, the work we do here. If you go up to Cumbria... Um, again, they're, they're mainly coastal species there, but there is an inland site, like a moorland wet site. I've never been there, but I heard they are. Also, upper salt marsh catchment areas. So on the Solway coast, there's um, quite a lot of upper salt marsh catchment where they're doing really well. We also have them in the south of the country on the um, Heathland sites, okay. and they're quite inland, so there's, there's a population mm, okay. in Surrey. The three main habitats in the UK for natterjacks is coastal dunes, upper salt marsh catchment areas and lowland heathlands so and those habitats are really rare as well yeah. and, and becoming more fragmented. You mentioned climate change yes. and whilst it's wet today which is probably a relief for these toads we've had a really dry June for example and maybe I don't know what it was like earlier in the year but there are going to be some challenges as the climate changes, I guess, with very hot, dry summers, for example, and not enough water in these scrapes. Yes, climate change is, is the hot topic in, in conservation at the moment, and a personal worry of myself managing sites for amphibians and monitoring their populations. So we're seeing drier winters, so ponds and scrapes are not filling up as much as we'd like to over the winter period okay. and then followed by dry springs and summers a lot of their breeding habitat is drying out so natterjacks start breeding in north wales end of march beginning of april so they need the water to start that process off if the water bodies isn't here they can't breed their numbers will slowly decline um, if we do have water like we've got now, which is fantastic, and they do manage to breed, we still need that constant, you know, rain every so often to keep these waters topped up. Um, I'd say it can take six to 12 weeks potentially for tadpoles to turn into toadlets. So they still need the water for that time period as well. The lucky thing about natterjacks is they can... Um, halt their breeding so they've got a longer breeding period of any of our UK amphibians so you know we're in mid-July now and I've seen 
posts from people saying they've had new spawn strings, which is great, but we don't want it to go too far into the summer because we've got that period of where they need to develop, get out as a little toadlet, feed up a little bit so they can survive a full winter period in hibernation as well. But also um, coastal erosion, we're getting quite a lot of stronger tides and storms coming in. If you walk up the beach here at Talacra now, you can see the last 10 years of damage of coastal erosion is slowly eroding the dunes back. And, and this dune system is very, very narrow, running from Talacra up to Prostatin, so the habitat's being more fragmented and there's as you can see, there's, there's lots of people around and dogs, and it means the pressures is, is more condensed. Natterjacks as well, they, they need the, the terrestrial habitat, so um, areas where they can find burrows to go down for daytime refuges as also overwintering refuges, so, so every part of their habitat is getting smaller. Shall we have a look in the pond and see if we can see any little... Well, tadpoles with legs, would they be at that stage Potentially. now? It depends when the spawn was laid. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you'll see tadpoles at different kind of life stages. Yeah. If they're almost ready to come out of the ponds, a good thing about natterjacks is that yellow dorsal strip is quite visible on, on the little tadpole as well. So you know it's a natterjack tadpole. Um, so what happens less, they, they absorb their tail, the, the, okay. the last. But then they'll come to the edges of water and they'll come in and out of the water because then they need to develop their lungs. And this is where you get to see them on, on the edges. So hopefully we'll be lucky enough to spot some. So they've been using gills whilst they're underneath yes. water, but they've been developing lungs at the same time. Yes. So at some point in the transition, they'll be breathing through maybe their gills and their lungs, depending whether they're in or out of the water moving backwards and forwards yeah and then do yeah. they go to the lungs permanently yes yeah. they do and yeah. what are they what are the little taddies eating the little tadpoles so they start off eating um, algae when they when they first come pop out as one and as they get bigger they'll be eating the the smaller aquatic inverts in 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 the actual water and um, when they develop into a toad um, they'll be they'll be going after things like spiders um little little um, beetles um, variety of things like that and then if when they go back into the water and they breed they will be eating aquatic inverts as well so they have quite a varied diet there's one so there we go we can just see just just less than half a foot into the water there's a, a black little tadpole and so that hasn't got any legs or anything just a tail a head and a tail just a tail I can see some vague legs developing. Oh yeah, they're swimming um, along. But, yeah, it's swimming along. They're quite quiet, it's quite cool today, so they're not as active as they would be if it's... There's but, another. Yeah, once you start seeing one, you start seeing the other. Actually, this water's really warm. It's surprisingly warm, it's isn't it? Warm. Oh, there's three or four over here as well. There's a whole little, whole yeah. little group over here. Yeah. Oh. So, so they've got some way to go yet, haven't they? They're not... Yeah, probably two. They're quite large, um, so probably a few weeks off um, being fully developed and wanting to move out of the water body. But and what's that little invertebrate there that's crawling along? That is a water scorpion. Bloody hell. So, Bloody. <laughs> oh my god. Be careful of your fingers, they do nip. Um, that is scary. It's approaching them. Oh my god. Yeah, so you may actually see it take one. They're, they're really top predators in the pond. 
Um, they've got, at the base, you may see a prod coming out, which we call a snorkel. So that, they, sometimes they come up to the top of the water and that will stick out and that's, that's, that's their breathing tube. Um, but they're really, they can give you a little nip on the end of your finger, um, but they're, um, yeah, they'll be wanting to predate those tadpoles. Oh. I've never seen a water scorpion. <laughs> What are these bits of carpet for? So the bits of carpet, um, you see some are submerged yeah. and some are out. So you can see it's quite it's quite bare around the perimeter of the scrape. Um, so when they first come out, as I explained, they come in and out, they hang around this marginal area. So we put these pieces of carpet down here so they can hide under it and if I lift one up it's also lots of critters there so there's a good mm. food source and it also keeps the area quite damp so nice slugs, beetles yeah unfortunately there's not any under here but it's, it's almost like a stepping stone before they can get to the more thicker vegetation so um, it just offers them that little bit of protection spider running for some eggs there <laughs> and you can see they've put some, some branches here to offer that kind of hidden protection leading up to a carpet tile and there's some planks of wood as well it looks a little bit untidy but because they're so rare these are the lengths we have to go to to make sure they they have the best possible chance we can give them extra help yeah these scrapes, they've got reeds in them and rushes in them at the moment and presumably, left to their own devices, that, that vegetation would grow and it would suck up the water and you'd end up losing the, the body of water. Um, so do you have to do some management on the scrapes to keep them watery? Yeah, so the scrape in front of us needs some management next year. So we, we would do that over the winter from November to February when all the amphibians are out of the ponds but the problem with, with this is every time you do it, you would deepen the ponds. So if we had time where we had lots of rain, potentially it could never dry out and then harbour lots of predators such as the water scorpion or, or dragonfly larva, which would then predate quite a lot on the, the spawn and the tadpoles. So it's really tricky getting the management right for the scrapes for natterjacks because um, they just want that gentle scrape that holds water. Nice clean pool with, with nothing in, no vegetation in, um, for a certain amount of time, and then to dry up every year. If it's too shallow, it's going to not stay wet during warm periods of the year or hotter periods of the year. And if it's too wet, it, it becomes a place where predators can yeah. establish themselves. So yeah. it's a fine balance. It's a fine balance, and the management is so intricate that on occasion... Um, a few of us will come down, volunteers will come down. If, if there's a fear of some scrapes drying up, we'll actually catch the tadpoles and move them to a scrape that's holding more water. And that's how critical it is, the work we do with natterjacks for their ultimate survival. Mm. It, it, it really is um, key. You know, a few hot days, it, it can dry up a scrape pretty quickly and we have to react quickly to that. And we have in another area got a, what we call the line scrape. 
and we can top that up with water. If everything is drying up and it's, it's really worrying, we can top that up with water and take all the tadpoles to there. So at least we will have some success that particular year as well. Mm. So we're now striding through some uh, quite tall vegetation up to our knees, grasses, rushes, yellow rattle, legumes, all sorts of, what's this London? I'm not too sure. Unfortunately, there is a lot of plants within the dunes that shouldn't be here. So Talacra's got um, a really fantastic history with World War II in a few different ways. So if you go out onto the beach where the lighthouse is and walk further up, there's a bunker. And years ago, they used to have spitfires coming over the dunes and they used to do target practice on the beach. People find lots of shells there now and you see people walking away with bucket loads of empty shells, which, which is amazing. But also we're, we're quite close to Liverpool and Manchester and what happened when the cities were being bombed they were evacuating people out of them and people came to live in the dunes so they had caravans and shacks mm. and mm. the local community would provide them with food and they were integrated into it um, even now in some parts we can see um, remnants of chimneys coming out of the dunes which were people's homes and I've chatted to quite a few people over the years that have walked here and said this is where their grandmother lived and mm. there's quite a lot of history of World War II but yeah. we've also got the remnants gardens. of the plants which people yeah. would have in their gardens. Yeah. So. so we have Carnethi ponies which are the Welsh mountain ponies which are grazing the dune grasslands to keep the sward short. Um, which is what natural ducks like, they like to run after the prey so they need a good kind of terrestrial running route to, to do that. So Canadais are chosen because they're an ancient breed and there's a lot of nutrient poor vegetation throughout the dune system so they thrive on it. I think there's about five or six down here at the mm. moment and that they're residents here so they're here all year round and they go from one enclosure to another kind of doing their job and and the community like them here as well they're Lots of people like to come out and, and see mm. them and take photographs. So we've moved to this sandy bank and this is, you said this is the sort of place where they might burrow. They will, so when they come out of the ponds they're looking for that daytime burrow and they've got quite powerful legs actually and they will burrow down into this sand cover themselves over and just basically stay there during the day, out of sight, nobody knows they're there. Well, occasionally um, I have come across, you know, part of a head, that notorious Natajaka eye looking at me. You could accidentally walk on them. Potentially, yes. And the dogs could find them. They could. That is the kind of conflict with a, you know, a busy tourist site and, and these species as well. But at the moment we're inside the enclosure and generally people do tend to stay the other side and there yeah. are interpretation boards and notices out providing people information about the species and the work we do. And occasionally they'll go down rab rabbit burrows, anywhere where they can safely get and they, they feel they're, they're safe and out of um, sight, that, that's where they'll be during the day. And we're looking at the moment at another square of 
carpet. So the carpet there again is to offer, you know, the knapsacks will go under it during the day. Uh, it also creates a really good um, food store for them. So are we going to lift that carpet up and see if there's anything underneath? We it? can do. I'll, I'll lift it up now. So there's a few um, wood louse running around, so natterjacks would eat those. But unfortunately, we haven't got a natterjack under here at the moment, so it must have gone elsewhere at the moment. <laughs> but you can see it, the carpet is tiles. The reason why we use it, it keeps the um, underneath sand or vegetation quite moist, and that's what amphibians love. They're attracted to, to go under here. And it helps us monitor them as well and get to see them and, and at different life stages as well. In the winter, they actually hibernate in burrows. When, when do you think they start going underground for the winter? Um, depends on temperatures, but usually I would say October, yeah. they would start going back to their over, overwintering. Half a metre to a metre, they would just burrow down yeah. and stay dormant. And the, this population of natterjack toads will just stay here? They, they won't migrate, or they won't move around particularly? or No, no. And... It's, it's something we have kind of thought about. The population here is stable. It has grown over the years. So they actually went extinct in Wales and we reintroduced them um, to here back in the mid-90s. So previously they were here in midway through the 20th century and, and due to, I explained before, about World War Two and various things happened here. The dunes High changed a lot. disturbance. <laughs> yeah, lots of holiday parks, the habitat became really condensed and they lost their habitat so a baseline survey was done no natterjacks were found and a reintroduction program took place and this is what we're managing and monitoring now but Granite and Talacra it's, it's, it's a really good stable population so what we're doing now further up the D estuary is looking at other sites we can use this site as a donor site and translocate and expanding their range mm. and we have successfully done that to one site which is Bettersfield which is in Bagot further up the D estuary mm. um, so that began in 2014 and we had successful breeding for the first time last year so it takes mm. a while of creating the habitat mm. translocating letting that translocated tadpoles and spawn strings come to sexual maturity age which is about four years of age for a natterjack and then start breeding themselves and creating a, and sustaining a population there. Yeah. So, so the work's not finished here in North Wales. It's, it's a continuous process. I haven't just been over that really hard. So okay. I'm currently walking through the June slap, which if we were here in April and it'd been really wet, there'd be lots of temporary bodies, water bodies here. Okay. And you'd hear the males falling and sometimes you'd see the females coming out sometimes with sand on them if they've come out of their burrows and they'll be on these short tracks here so we'd walk around here with our torches trying to find them and look out and count them. This is the nice short grass here on the boat is it? Yes it is so yeah this is where they'd um, like to go running they've even been seen on the beach as well yeah. um, but sometimes we have a team of people walking up and down the beach to see if we can find them. But it's good to have water bodies, you know, scattered throughout the dune system. 
it creates a good metapopulation so it just widens out and they can occupy the whole of the dune system. So having walked across the dunes, we're now turning over and looking underneath bits of carpet again, trying to find toads. It's perfect weather for them. Mm. It's quite exciting doing this because yes. you just never know what, what's going to appear or what you're going to find. Sometimes you never find anything, but sometimes you find quite a lot. There's lots of bugs under that one. There's still no nutterjacks. If I was hungry, I'd be in there if I was a nutterjack. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's a typical burrow there. So they would squeeze down that as well. It looks like a small mammal's made it, but they would squash their bodies down into that and hide. We've got this one and this one. Yeah. So that's smaller than I imagined. Yeah. But they are a smaller toad mm. as well. Yeah. So if you had any juveniles coming out, that would be perfect for them. Yeah. Mm. To go down and hide out. They might be in there. They could be. I'll just keep looking and see if I can find anything. Oh, we've got a newt under here. Hmm. You can just see her. Oh, yeah. That's a female smooth newt. You can just see her kind of nestled into this little crevice over here. Um, so that's really good for her because it's still quite wet. She's keeping her skin nice and moist there and she's probably been breeding in this area as well. You can see underneath they have these beautiful markings. Um, like an orangey yellow cover coloured through the belly. Mm, and those tail. tail and those really nice spots under the chin mm. as well. So yeah, she's a, she's an adult female so she's got to be at least three years plus. Sometimes I'll hang out under things like this because it's a good food source. So she's got the same type of um, diet as a toad, Roughly. invertebrates. Yeah, yeah, small, small invertebrates. Um, so you could see she was quite sedentary there, and you can see the small invertebrates running around. She may just choose to get one. And they also go for small worms and stuff as well. She seems quite happy sitting on your hand. It's because it's warm. <laughs> She'll be enjoying that. Some free heat from a warm-blooded mammal. Oh, we've got baby... Um, not sure what they are, but can you see mm. them? Oh, um, mammals. Yeah. Yeah, there's mm. quite a few that got their fur. Cozy. We'll so little mice or yeah. moles or something. Occasionally you do get that. You lift some up and you jump because they're looking at you. Oh, we've got 
got another newt and this is a smooth male newt so you can see the kind of patterning on him oh, compared yeah. to the female some dark quite dark spots and you can see the ridge along the back so yeah. that's if you put him in water the, the crest would come up with the buoyancy of the water but he's a lot spottier um, and the underneath is more vibrant than the female mm. as well and they have like um, a mask running through their eyes like a line and one under just where their mm. mouth opening is as well spiders running off as well we've got a few more bits we can have a look under um, just hoping to get a little <laughs> toadlet or an adult or something We're towards the end of our tour of the sand dunes and the system and we've come to one last scrape which, Mandy, you've told us this is lined. Whilst it will dry out if it's very hot, uh, it's less likely to because it's lined and you can come and fill it up. And this is where you would bring tadpoles if the other scrapes were in danger of drying out and you wanted to make sure that at least some tadpoles from the season survived your volunteers and yourselves would come to this scrape. That's that's right. Yes, this is what we kind of call our safety net. So there's a liner under the sand here. You can't see the liner, but we have got bowsers further down the field, which we fill with water. We would allow it quite a few days to freshen up. And then we'd be able to then bring water down here and keep topping it up. If it wasn't lined, it would just get absorbed into the ground and it we'd lose the water quicker, but we could keep it topped up and keep a population going here until metamorphosis took place. That's what we do if all the scrapes on this site are drying up. This is the kind of the last chance really for mm. them. And we have been maybe to three or four different scrapes and we've been picking up the little patches of carpet and we've been seeing plenty of invertebrates under them, nice conditions for invertebrates, a nest of a small nest of rodents of some sort and several smooth newts but we haven't unfortunately seen any natterjack toads or toadlets no no but we have seen tadpoles yes we have seen natterjack tadpoles yeah. which is which is a good sign but no unfortunately i i, I always feel the pressure on situations like this no. to to come up with the goods but unfortunately they're they're not under them today is that maybe to do with the dry weather that we've been having potentially Potentially, I would have, I would like to have seen more natterjack toadlets under them at this time of year. But we've had such a dry, dry winter from January onwards. It's been fairly dry up until the last week or so, where the ponds are starting to fill up a little bit now, and there's more water. Um, but normally, if a scrape, an example of this scrape at the moment holding water, if there'd been a lot of breeding, you would expect to see natterjack toadlets under these or or in the short vegetation, um, not far from the pond. But unfortunately, we don't have that today. <laughs> yeah, and there is a chance that s some breeding may still take place. We're not right at the end of the season. So if a female hasn't bred up till now, if she's kind of hung back, there's still a chance now that it's getting wet. Yes. So it's, yeah, it's still quite warm, it's still wet, and that's, that's what amphibians love, um, warm, wet 
um, evenings, days. So there is a chance potentially that we could have another kind of last phase of, of breeding. It has happened in various places in the country. Um, I haven't heard of any reports here at the moment, but there is that chance. But it's a fight against time then really um, for them to um, go through that kind of life stage to come a, a little toadlet and then it'll need a little bit of time to feed and get a little bit bigger to survive a, a hibernation winter so it's not ideal but um, yeah it's it, it can happen and it's a fight against time for them then so yeah. it's, an, it's another factor to to put in there for them yeah yeah it struck me today that it's quite precarious being a uh, natterjack toad in modern day 21st century Britain. <laughs> it is. It's. I think for we can speak for all species. So it's getting harder and harder for for every wildlife species to survive in a rapidly changing world we're living in. You know, sat here now. You know, we're in northeast Wales, which it's seen a lot of development. So we may have heard the train pass by. We've got the caravan parks. We've got the visitors. Um, there's a lot of pressures and habitats are getting smaller. For species like natterjacks in this country where they only survive on, in three habitats, it's crucial that we do save these spaces for them and, and do the best we can. You've mentioned your work with the Amphibian and Reptile Conservation Trust and the, the way that volunteers help you locally with the natterjack toads. But, I mean, what, what could people do generally to help reptiles and amphibians survive? Well, apart from, yeah, coming and volunteering, not, not just monitoring them, but habitat work over the yeah. winter. Like, you've seen the expanse of what we've just walked through and you can see all these shrubs growing up here. Um, trees aren't meant to be in sand dunes, you know. We always need manpower to to help manage their habitats. That's where we need the help the most. Um, but also people can do things in their gardens, not necessarily for natterjack toads, but for all amphibians and reptiles, you know, you can create a pond, you can create a habitat pile, various different things, but, but also to record it. As a national, um, leading national organisation, we nationally look at not just kind of site trends, but regional and national trends, and we create maps off that. So by monitoring them and uploading, you know, providing us with the data, gives us a better view on how we can turn things around and look after them on the ground. There's knowing where they are, what numbers, or if there's any sudden changes in things. I think that's the best thing that people can do and, and tell everybody about it as well. You know. So if, if someone actually put a new pond in their garden, would some toads or frogs you know, or newts come there? Potentially. Yeah. It depends if they're in the area and what connectivity features are to the pond from another area. So if you imagine a landscape and I was creating a, a landscape for amphibians, you would put multiple ponds in, you'd put hedgerows in, you'd put dry stone walls in, you'd have wildflower meadows, you would have possibly low density grazing. It's, it's how that landscape's managed and they can move through it. So by having lots of ponds and breeding ponds, you're, you're stretching that population out. And then you have subpopulations where they're breeding in different genetic areas and then they have an interchange between those so you get a more robust population so mm. that's how I would imagine but I don't think people realise how important what they're doing in their garden mm. is to the amphibian survival. And if people wanted to hear natterjack toads themselves they could come to one of the nature reserves like this one or the Cumbria one at night time and just by staying on the actual paths they could probably hear them. 
yeah, you can hear them for up to a mile away. Yeah. Um, normally, I park in a car park and we can usually hear them calling before we've, yeah. we've even approached the scrapes. But yeah, to actually handle them or work with them, you need... They're a protected species because they're so critically rare. Yeah. You have to have licences yeah. and, and the knowledge behind them to hold them. But, you know, people can come out with myself or other members of staff with licences if they want a more kind of um, up-close experience with them. But just by walking on the path, so you can see the path running yeah. linear with, with this enclosure now. People do say if, if we're out and about, oh, we heard them last night. Mm. And it's like, that's, that's fantastic. And they go, they go, it doesn't sound like we're in this country. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It's, it just sounds so tropical, which makes them so amazing. And yeah, the best sound fibbing we've got really in the country. <laughs> And keeping dogs on leads during the breeding season is probably really important as well, isn't it? It is, especially when there's not enclosures like this. Um, this is all fenced off and it is pretty obvious that, you know, we don't want people to enter here. But, you know, for other species, there's skylarks breeding here, they're ground nesting birds. So, so yeah, I think it's just good practice keeping dogs on leads really in sensitive areas where nature is. And I think one last question is, what has the Natterjack Toad taught you? Ooh. <laughs> well, I guess they've taught me a lot. They've taught me how to look after them. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing, really. That's what they've taught me. I've had to research and, and learn off other people, people that have been, you know, monitoring these species since the 1970s. I've had the privilege to work alongside them or have access to their information. They've taught me how to look after them and to continue doing so and, and also passing my knowledge on to other people as well. You know, as, I, as I'm getting older and new people are coming into the sector is, is um, equipping them with that information as well to, to move forward. To ensure their survival. Yeah. yeah. 